The Be Impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rivki Itzkowitz, and on today's show, I talk with an activist and public figure about how she reverse-engineered eyeballs to break into the marketing world. She shares why she's so passionate about women's faces in print the stance she regrets taking, her relationship with online vitriol, and I ask if she just wants attention. Chances are, if you're listening to this, you've already made up your mind about Adina Miles Sash, better known as Flappish Girl. And I suspect that no matter what those preconceived notions are, you'll find evidence to confirm your suspicions in this conversation. Which is fine, I guess. I'm not here to change anyone's opinion, and Adina truly doesn't care what you think. What I was like as a little kid, um, I'm an only girl and I'm an oldest child, so I think there is a lot of responsibility that falls on an oldest girl, especially within a you know religious household where there's certain expectations that fall on daughters to be very maternal and nurturing and like a mom's uh, you know right hand man um, really from a very young age you know I mean I see in my uh, in my community I see very often three year old girls running to get their mom a diaper or the baby wipes for the changing table and so I definitely you know was in that big sister, little mommy role from a very young age. Um, And I would say, you know, I felt sort of the responsibility in the household and, you know, helping out in the kitchen, helping out on Shabbos, clearing off the table um, after dinner and things like that. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, I was exposed to a lot of, you know, movies. I was exposed to the internet from a young age, a lot of, you know, eclectic music. And so definitely my, you know, my creative sense and my worldliness was primed from a very young age. And that sort of gave me the frame of reference and the context to question some of the things I heard in the classroom, because it didn't always, uh, it, it wasn't always so seamless or didn't always match the things that I was exposed to um, from the media and the entertainment I was consuming. So I would say that's what I was like. Do you think kid. that your like? Do you think that your questioning in a in a classroom setting specifically was encouraged, or like what what kind of things were you questioning, and how did people react to that? So, for example you know, let's say teachers putting a lot of tremendous emphasis on translating scripture first into Yiddish and then into Hebrew and then into English. I felt that it was sort of arbitrary and not really functional in that just doing rote translations wasn't actually giving my brain or any student's brain an understanding of how to converse or use the language or have mastery of the language in a useful way. 
so I remember, you know, even trying to negotiate with my teacher, even in like fourth grade and saying, could you give me a separate grade on my test on the translations? And can you give me a separate grade for just testing my knowledge on the material? Because I feel like I'm starting off my test 20 points lower for not having these exact translations into Yiddish and Hebrew down perfectly. And it's not motivating me to want to even study for the next test. And it's not making me feel positively reinforced or paying attention in class. So could you give me a separate grading? And it could even just be a private deal between me and you. I have to let the other students know. And it was like, who is this fourth grader trying to negotiate with me? Like, no, that's right. not how we do it. And I would start off every test with an 80. And it was very frustrating. Yeah, that's that's definitely super frustrating. It seems like you're someone who kind of recognized, I don't want to say like injustice, because that seems like a very heavy word to put on a fourth grader. But it seems like you're <laughs> someone who was just very in tuned with what was going on around you always from from a super young age. So it's funny to say that injustice is a term that may be too much to put onto a kid. But to be honest, and I know it's, it's so cliche, and it just sounds so you know, I know that there's a lot of values that we question in Disney movies, like a lot of the messaging we get in the Disney films as kids can can have some, you know, improper or non-wholesome or triggering impacts in the development of our brains as, as young children, especially as young girls talking about thinking about body image, thinking about, you know, romance. And, uh, you know, things like that. However, I would say that even really my exposure to Disney movies um, really did prime my brain about concepts like justice and injustice. Um, And so there are, to me, redeeming qualities for, you know, movies like Pocahontas that talk about the land and who the land belongs to and, 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 you know, or even like little mermaid or Ariel, you know, wanting to be part of a different world and not feeling like she has agency over her own body. And so these were small ways in which my young mind was sort of primed for these concepts. And I loved, you know, matching and seeing the intertextualness between these, you know, these whimsical films and things that we were learning already in in first grade that were extremely heavy, like, you know, Cain killing Hevel, um, you know, Cain killing his brother Abel. These are like very intense concepts to teach a young child. And there was a lot of um, similarities and comparisons I was able to draw that I think um, allowed me to to really question and have a better grasp on what I was learning and feel comfortable and confident in challenging my teachers and asking questions, which I was always just very disappointed in their answers. <laughs> yeah, most most of us were. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing when you're in a when you're even if you're in a school that maybe encourages questions, which some are better at than others, um, there's still to a certain extent, there is still like a formula that you that they kind of have to follow just by virtue of the fact that they are educating lots and lots of kids. And, and it's hard when people don't, it's hard for everyone involved when you don't fit the mold. It's hard for the person who's not fitting. It's hard for the people who are, um, you know, creating the mold. It's just, it's, it would be so much easier if people were simpler than they are, but they're not. And that's why life is so fun that way. I'm curious, were you a funny kid in school? I wasn't. And I, and I don't consider myself to even be necessarily a funny adult. I think that you know, just being able, just saying ideas 
that are maybe shocking or or make people uncomfortable makes people laugh because it's 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 like this release of tension that they get so it and you know funny is like a term that i'm not really sure how to you know how i relate to that i don't consider myself funny then or now but i definitely think that some of my comments have a tendency of provoking laughter from people because it touches on nerve endings that make them a little uncomfortable. And so they laugh sometimes not out of jest, but out of discomfort. I hear that. The reason why I ask is because most people know you as Flatbush Girl, um, which started out, to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, as like a comedy thing. It was these little skits and things that you were putting online that I always found. I mean, listen, I'm from Queens. I like to make fun of Brooklyn people. I I can't help it. So when I, for me like, and for like me and my sisters and my friends, it was always you know, they were fun videos to watch and they were, and they, and they, and they are, they're fun videos to watch and they were kind of comical. And I'm curious where the idea for that came from and, and how all of that got started. So I, I've, I've definitely addressed this, you know, question in, in different um, mediums and on, you know, from different interviewers. And so there's definitely going to be some redundancy and also some new angles that I've taken uh, that, you know, as I've, as I gain more perspective over that um, chapter in my activism or in my, you know, public persona. So I would say that from where, from where I'm sitting right now and from how I see it, uh, basically, I really wanted to get into the marketing world. I wanted to run a marketing business. I always love the communication between, you know, the creator of a service or product and their potential target demographic. There's something very fascinating about that you know, that relationship. And the more I went about it in a, you know, in a, in a regular manner, I just didn't see enough interest. And so as I learned more about social media, I recognized that people were really engaging with content that was very funny. And so I tried to reverse engineer getting some attention and getting some eyeballs. And with the help of my um, husband, who is an amazing, uh, you know, director, writer, creative mind. Um, I was sort of his muse for a lot of the scripts that we put together. And it was sort of like a, you know, like two people in a band creating co-artists. And we found that using humor was a very powerful tool to communicate with people. And through that, I was able to draw um, clients who were interested in my services, not necessarily as me or as Flatfish Girl, but maybe more like white labeled and, you know, just helping them behind the scenes. And so uh, I guess that's where I got started. And that might even be why I'm not so motivated to continue in that genre, because really for me, uh, if I'm being honest and transparent, it was about catching fish and not so much because it was a language that I love to communicate with. And so now that I've sort of, you know, established my marketing company and established my reputation as a marketer, I'm just not so connected to continuing to communicate as a comedian. I hear that. And honestly, I think that as a marketer, that's a brilliant strategy and it works really well. And, and yeah, that's definitely a, a great tactic to take with it. Based on the way that you phrase that, it sounds to me like you consider the kind of lighthearted, you know, what people would consider the comedic beginnings of Flatbush Girl as part of your current activism. Is that true? Yeah, definitely. Because 
the punchline um, behind the satire, or if you would deconstruct almost all of those uh, mini skits, there's there's hidden messages that are not even so hidden. They're just, you know, they're irony or they're not direct criticisms about um, stereotypes within our community, expectations for women within our community, uh, within the Jewish community, specifically within the Orthodox Jewish community. And so I do consider it a form of activism if at the end of the day, the call to action uh, that most sophisticated viewers were able to deduce was that there are problems within our community for um, Orthodox women and that we need to sort of call them out or address them because uh, we look pretty ridiculous. Right. And that's, see, this is the thing where, this is the part that's fascinating to me because you and I have a lot of the same beliefs and you and I talk publicly about a lot of the same beliefs. And one, one issue that I know that you are particularly passionate about is, um, you know, firm women have faces, which is um, against the, the general Orthodox media will not publish women's faces. So there are certain publications or certain um, newspapers, there are certain magazines that if I were to, let's say, promote my business, I could not basically show my product, which is stupid um for <laughs> that's it's just it like it's it's just it's just ridiculously stupid and that was i think the first issue that you and you still continue to to talk about a lot and to fight about for what was it specifically about that issue that made you want to really hone in on it i think that's a very easy issue to target because it's so visceral and it's such a it's such an obvious issue um, it doesn't require a lot of explaining, although it does actually, it turns out it does. <laughs> <laughs> turns out, you know, the uh, conclusions that you and I have, like it's just stupid, um, are not shared by everyone. I thought that addressing women's lack of women's faces in print would be an easy way to address and highlight the way the Orthodox Jewish community um, has some misogynistic tendencies. And I, I, I just felt that it was super clear that if you have a female dentist or a male dentist or a female real estate agent or a male real estate agent, or you have someone who's a makeup artist or a shetel or, you know, shetel macher or a wig specialist, that by not allowing them to showcase their product or their face to resonate with their potential customer, and a lot of trust is built on the perception that the client has with the face of the person who's going to be servicing them. I thought that it was a very clear way to show that there's lack of equality and opportunity between the genders uh, in the Orthodox Jewish community. But turns out um, a lot of people have bought into the false rhetoric that it's all about modesty and it's something that makes Orthodox Jewish community very special. And it's a beautiful thing that we hide our women and we protect them from the eyes of um, horny viewers. And so it's really been, it's been a more challenging battle than I thought. I initially took it on because I thought I would have progress a lot quicker on it and really just wanted to be able to do something that was an easier barrier of entry to making some measurable change in, in the Jewish community. But turns out I was wrong. Yeah. It's in, do you find that most of the pushback that you get comes from men or comes from women? I, I find that it comes almost equally between the two. It's, uh, you know, I, I don't find that there's more of a, you know, I, I don't find that there's anything statistical uh, between the gender that, you know, pushes back on the issue. 
Uh, and surprisingly, I also find that people even outside the Jewish community also are not always so well-versed on how damaging this can be. And even some outsiders will say things like, oh, we have to respect you know, the cultures and the practices of different cultures. And it's just a very disappointing you know, set of feedback that I often get because at the end of the day, it is a form of oppression and lack of equality and opportunity for women. And it does manifest itself in very dangerous ways for women's health. Uh, for example, you know, if there isn't going to be a female doctor shown in a in in printed media talking about issues that relate to females' health because it's immodest, um, these are things that come back to haunt women in, in many other ways. I could go on and on and give examples, but yeah, it's um, yeah, you know, it, it is definitely something that I think is very important. I think it's also important just because, like, I, I think I'm a, I'm a couple of grades behind you. I'm I'm 26 now, and so even when I was in school, it was the kind of thing where it was like the things that you could be were in a lot of ways, very limited. Um, there were, and, and, and I did not go to a closed minded school at all, but it was still very like, you could be a teacher, you could be a psychology major, you could become a speech therapist. You, there were like, there were things that you did. And then there were other things that were very, very out there. When I started, you know, when I started opening my business and I started saying, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an entrepreneur and a fashion designer. There were a lot of people who were like, that's a terrible idea. You will never get a date. And my answer to that was fine. Then like wrong guy for me. That's not like, I don't, you, you only need one. And I didn't date a lot. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't date a, a lot of guys before my husband fell from the sky. That's a different story. But the, <laughs> the, that's, those are, those are the kinds of things where when it comes to when you don't have the representation, we know that representation matters. We know that it's important. And this is a conversation that happens in the wider world around different minority groups. It's a big deal when Fresh Off the Boat was the first sitcom to feature a, a fully Asian family. That's a big deal. You know, same for same for shows like Blackish and, and all of that. That's there's a reason why everyone loves Bill Cosby so much and it's so hard to keep him in jail. Like there's a reason why that is like that. And it's because representation matters. And the fact is that in the Orthodox community, there is not enough representation for women. And what you see is that because the, because the angle, see what's fascinating to me is that when all of this came, came to head with uh, the Aguna movement last Purim was just that what had happened was, was that because traditional media had been closed to us, Orthodox women became experts at the social media space because there is no barrier to entry there. You just pick up your phone and you start and you're there. And because of that, we were, we're really good at it. We're really, really good at it. We know what we're doing when it comes to this space. We know how to create viral content. We know how to create, you know, things that are going to go really far in the social media space. And that's, and there's a very good reason why I don't think I've really seen mention of all the movement that's been happening around the Gunos. And granted, I can't say that I follow traditional Orthodox print media closely. I don't follow it at all. Um, but I, but, but I don't think that there's been the same level of discussion there that there has been online because that's not where, that's not where we're welcome. So we've taken our party elsewhere. I think that's a phenomenal observation and definitely explains a lot of, you know, a lot of why, a lot of why things went viral on social media, exactly what you're saying. Women have learned how to wield uh, their voices and how to capture an audience out of need, out of necessity. And 
and and I guess the silver lining is that we were able to take a lot of viral campaigns, um, you know, on social media and captivate audiences to pay attention and and make create awareness for issues that particularly were affecting women. So yeah, I agree with you. Right. You're very honest about the fact that you started Flopish Girl as, you know, as a way to to get clients for a marketing firm. Um, and I'm sure that there are plenty of people, and I know because I've read your comments, which is we'll get to in a second. Um, most people think that you do what you do for attention. They think that you just love the spotlight and that you enjoy having all of these eyeballs on you. Is that true? I mean, I think it's a little bit of a ridiculous accusation because if you go through my social media feed or you ask me about particular projects that I've worked on on social media, I'm paid for most of the work that I do online. Um, Usually when you see the biggest lulls in my online presence, it's because either I'm taking time off and not working with clients at that time. um, And most of the content has a sponsor. So I just think it's a little ridiculous. Yeah, do I like getting paid to get attention? Absolutely. I definitely am a very entrepreneurial hustler. I definitely um, enjoy the process of growing my business and and the um, financial luxuries that come along with that. And so that really is what motivates me. I definitely have my heart in the game of activism. You know, I'm a volunteer EMT. I'm a volunteer doula at the moment. And so I definitely do a lot of volunteer work, but you won't even see me documenting those parts of my life because if no one's paying me to post it, I don't really get that much satisfaction out of sharing it. I find actually that documenting on social media really strips me of being present in my life and fully immersing myself in an experience like a tactile experience or, you know, when I go away on vacation or I'm spending time with my kids, the last thing I want to do is pick up my phone. So I just find that it's a very um, easy way to dismiss very important work um, or creative work that is being done or entrepreneurial work that is being done by women. And I very often have heard the same accusation hurled at people like Judge Ruchi Fryer, who is anything but someone who seeks attention. It's a very easy stock gut reaction to say about any woman who has managed to get some time and who has managed to um, spotlight an issue that she is bringing awareness to. And so when I still hear that, you know, when I hear that, um, accusation hold at me like you know and I hear it all the time I really just laugh and I'm just like that person has literally revealed themselves as someone with you know um, a sexist outlook because I just don't see anyone calling God Elbaz an attention whore I don't see anyone calling um, Dove Hikins an attention whore so I just find it interesting that very often those terms are hurled at women yeah, it's, it's true. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of like from slut shaming in a lot of ways. It's like, exactly. that. yeah. And again, and it goes back to that thing that, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to see, if you're going to see modesty as something that has to happen indoors and that can happen in any kind of public sphere, um, which is just not something that I believe to be true. And I don't think that the Torah does either, then, then you're always, then that's always going to be your, 
your pushback. You've spoken out about a lot of different issues over the years, um, a lot of, and, and there have been a lot of different things that have come up and some with more or less success. I'm curious if there's anything that you've spoken up about that you've regretted afterwards. That's actually a great question. When I was running for city council in the 45th district in Brooklyn, I was asked to share my perspectives on the Department of Education having more invasive control over what was being taught in the yeshiva systems. And this was a very important topic within politics and still is. Very often politicians are asked this question and it's sort of a way of feeling out um, if the politician has an awareness of the insider issues going on within the Orthodox Jewish community. And my, my feelings on the topic of the Department of Health having more jurisdiction over um, standards of education within the Yeshiva Beis Yaakov private school Jewish um, education system was that I, I felt that it wasn't necessary. And I felt that it was not appropriate. And I felt that it could potentially be a slippery slope for things like the Department of Health saying that circumcision has to be done within a hospital or has to be done by a physician. And so I felt that I was pr protecting, um, you know, I felt that I was protecting the Torah and belief system of the Jewish community, of the Orthodox Jewish community. And then in retrospect, after having many, many conversations with um, products of schools who really don't have access to basic English education, and when I say English, I mean English as a language, my eyes have really been open to the shortchanging that these individuals have been given to something that I think is an inherent human right, which is education. And so I've sort of reformulated my thoughts on the topic and have said, and, and my conclusion is that if we're talking about topics like history and geography and, you know, chemistry and, and, you know, I, I don't know necessarily that those topics need to be regulated by the Department of Education, but at the very, very least, the English language should be something that all American students in all American schools are given mastery of. Uh, they should be a mass, they should have a command of the language that positions them for income within a modern economy that would allow them to fully support their families and to fully support themselves and be contributing members of society. Uh, and that, you know, by doing so, we'll have less families who are reliant on, on things like food stamps and Section E. And it's not because these families are lazy or trying to take advantage, but more because they've been underprivileged and having you know, in learning the English language. And so I guess that's my new position. And the only reason I say I regret it so much, and I really do consider this one of my biggest regrets is because, because I wasn't, you know, fully understanding and I didn't have the right empathy or the right perspectives on the issue. I really harmed a lot of people in that process and, um, you know, you know, isolated a lot of my fans and, and that's fine. That ship has sailed. You know, a lot of my a lot of my allies are not on speaking terms with me because of this topic, and that's okay. You know, the life is all about learning, and you know, you know, finding the boundaries around people that we just don't click with. Um, you know, from a cultural or whatever educational perspective. But yeah, that is one of my biggest regrets. 
Yeah, that's that's definitely a very a very hot button issue. I'm cu- I'm glad that you brought up your city council run. Um, I'm pretty sure that that was the first time, definitely a firm woman like within a decade of my age, ran. Was it the first time that a firm woman had ever run for city council? So it depends how you define from. Okay, I hear that. That's fine. Okay, let's say someone who considers themselves orthodox in any way, modern, modern, modern so, orthodox or otherwise. Right. There was a Jewish woman who had actually represented the 45th district, a couple of city council members before um, Jemani Williams. Um, but I, I still consider, you know, you know, I still consider myself to be one of the first, one of the first from women running for a city council. What was that experience like? And why'd you do it? Why bother? So the reason I wanted to do it is because I really saw when I ran for district leader, I ran for district leader first, which is a volunteer position within the political sphere. And I saw how much the Jewish community was really harming their own voice within politics. Having a strong turnout of votes that influences politicians to want to do good by those communities so that they can win their votes. And then there's that loyalty that because you voted me in or because I see that you have such a power, you know, the rabbinical leadership has such a sway over how the community votes that they do want to pander and support those communities. And I really saw as I got into it with the district leader race that our community was really losing that power, that there was a lot of fragmentation, a lot of splintering. Our leadership was not giving, um, was not giving over, you know, adequate instructions of how they wanted us to vote, why they wanted us to vote a certain way. And I felt that, you know, there needed to be more of a, a youthful voice that um, that had more of their, like you said, the word, you know, finger on the pulse, like there needed to be a voice of someone who had their finger more on the pulse of where our community was holding right for more political engagement from young voters. There's very few young registered voters within the Flappish community. Um, I think sort of our community got cozy and forgot that being politically active is something you have to constantly maintain. You always have to register the 18 year old. You have to teach people what it means to get out and vote. Um, we have a very low turnout going on in the Orthodox Jewish community, and it's really erasing our own voices and our and our needs are being neglected by politicians because of this. And I felt that as an Orthodox Jewish representative, it would be something that was welcomed by the community, appreciated by the community, and that I could do right by the community and also show the frame of reference for a female politician. Like there's no from women in 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 local politics other than Judge Riffy Fryer and maybe one or two civic court judges. Uh, that's really not enough representation, especially in these local districts. There's there's male city council members and it's a boys club. And it's precisely why I think organizations like Ezra Snushim um, have such a hard time getting out there because there's so little political support from, you know, from the men because they just don't, fully understand why certain things are needed. So that's why I, I raised my hand. I offered my services. I was completely um, ostracized, demonized, and you know made a fool of 
I was actually named the spoiler of the race. The spoiler is a candidate who is going to end up taking votes away for no reason from a front runner who could be a better choice. And the community put lots of ads in the paper against me. Um, you know, election day itself, there were a lot of, you know, cronies on the street saying, you know, speaking slander about me to incoming voters. And there was a lot of voter suppression and there was a lot of, there was no, there was no systemic support. I happen to have finished fourth out of around, you know, 15 candidates, which I think is pretty impressive for a first campaign when I was getting so much pushback and I was the only white candidate, um, only Jewish candidate as well. So I don't think finishing fourth is too bad, but um, it was actually a very traumatic experience. And I don't think I'll definitely not until I hit menopause would consider going back into the race because until I'm no longer fertile, I think I'll just continuously be accused of being a slut. <laughs> like you're running for city council because you want attention. You're running for city council for all the wrong reasons. And maybe hopefully if after I hit menopause and I think the reproductive phase of a woman actually does have some sort of correlation with how often or how intensely she's, you know, called for, you know, called out for wanting, just wanting to have attention. So maybe I would consider something, you know, later on in life, but definitely not now, for sure not. Do you think that if you were like not, you're like, I don't, I don't want to use the word ugly, but you are what we would consider like a conventionally pretty person by kind of normal society standards. You know, you're, you're white, you're skinny, you're, you know, you have a beautiful face, you put yourself together. Do you think that if you were less attractive, you would get less pushback? <laughs> That's a great question. Something tells me you're going to end up editing out this question. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, first of all, thank you so much. That's so sweet of you to say. Um, but I would say the answer is no. I think the answer just purely comes down to gender and the reproductive phase that any female is in. And I think when we talk about rape culture, um, I don't think there's any correlation with you know how conventionally attractive the victim is. And I think this is in a, some way, obviously I'm not comparing myself to a victim of rape at all, but the harassment and the interrogation and the slander and accusations that I faced were really invasive and really, really intrusive into my life. And I think that this is just something that occurs to women across the board um, who, you know, of all, of all, of all ethnicities, of all ethnicities and all body types. And I think that there isn't really a, a correlation, but thank you. I, I, I hear that. I, I definitely hear that. I'm, I want to pivot just a little bit. The comments that you get on social media, I think that your comment section is the most vitriolic that I have <laughs> ever seen. And I follow a lot of celebrities. So I'm not just saying like within the Orthodox community for sure, by the way, but in general on pretty much if you go to any post on your page there is somebody on there telling you to go into a ditch and die um and that they will you know roll the tractor over you when they you know when they dump whatever they're thinking of and it's 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 very intense and it's and it's i mean it's frankly embarrassing for anyone who feels the need to engage in that kind of behavior online or in person or at any point um but you have 
you you deal with a unique amount of just vitriol that's really really vicious and I'm curious what your relationship is with that now and I don't want to say how you handle it because I don't think that someone can handle that amount of of you know that onslaught but um what do you you know what's your relationship with it now so the reason I think there's so much vitriol in my comments and more so than maybe on other pages that you're seeing is because I really don't delete comments and I really don't block trolls. So you're not seeing a curated comment section. For me, it's anyone's game to comment. And I mean, I definitely, if I see someone is attacking another one of my followers unjustly, I'll definitely step in and try to, you know, you know, try to defend the person who's being attacked. But if someone's attacking me, I think it's more of a learning lesson. And I think it's a greater service to the community for onlooking women and men to see the kind of vitriol that a outspoken uh, challenger of the status quo receives um, than to curate it and create some sort of false image that you know, everything's great and people love what I have to say and like, look at me, I'm so accepted. Um, because to me, it's a way of showing people, look, like what I'm talking about is real. When I talk about the misogyny, when I talk about the pushback, when I talk about the suppression and the way that everyone needs to be like fit into a certain mold and women have to, you know, fit a certain, you know, description. Um, and then you see that, there's all support for that in the comments and people would possibly walk away saying things like, but what's she talking about? Like, we all agree with her that women should have that flexibility and fluidity in, in who they are as a Jewish woman. And so I leave those comments up so people see there is those in the community who feel this way, who will try to force women into a box. And I think it's so much more impactful than having, you know, no hate. And I think that many other influencers, you know, excuse the expression, um, or celebrities or whatever you want to say, really do delete or block people that create any sort of tension or make them feel defensive. And I've just learned to not take it personally. And I've learned to look at it as a learning experience for my viewers. I hear that. And yeah, it's within anyone's right to, you know, to delete or block or curate their space. That's, that's up to them. It is obviously a challenge to be you know, told to go die every day. Um, but I also, I, I'll push back on that because I do think sure. you and I are outspoken about almost the same issues. And granted, you're dealing with a much larger platform than I am. So you're obviously going to attract all the wonderful people that that, that comes with that. But I remember, I think it was around um, when Chachmat Nashim put out that seal of approval that they were talking about. So Shoshana Keats Jaskol has this organization, Chachmat Nashim, that's very specifically committed to um, to getting women's faces into print. And she had a um, kind of like a seal that she was putting that you could apply for as a brand that essentially said that you featured women in your advertising and that you wouldn't advertise with companies um, or with magazines or publications that would not um, publish women's faces. So it was a seal that I approved for, that I applied for and got approved for in five seconds, which I knew that I would. Um, that was something that I was you know, pretty outspoken about from the get-go. And 
we had been, we had been kind of talking and I, and I right away said to you, you know, you know, and I, I posted that I had gotten this seal and I immediately got an overwhelmingly positive response. And again, obviously we're dealing with a much smaller audience. I got, and what I actually said to you was, well, the response has been really overwhelming. And you immediately started apologizing. You said, I'm so sorry that you got so much hate for, um, you know, for, for, for posting about this thing. I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Like, here's how, how you do that. I was like, no, 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 it was all great. It was all fantastic. It was all people, you know, wanting to know where they could find the list of the businesses that are going to support this, this notion. Do you think that there's something about you that just makes people want to be nasty to you? Like, where, do you think that there's something about what you're doing that brings those, that, those types of comments out of the woodwork? I think my tone in general is a very unwavering and confident tone. And I very often do not quantify or qualify my statements or use postscripts. For example, if I say something like, oh, I support Israel, however, like you won't hear me saying however. You won't hear me prefacing what it is about my support of Israel that is, you know, I, I won't follow up with any postscripts. I'm very... I'm fully a Zionist. I am fully in support of my birthright and homeland, Israel. Um, and the same thing when it comes to my support of the LGBTQ and um, you know the Black Lives Matter movement. I am fully in support of both of those movements. And I don't qualify my statements by saying things like, however, if there are rioters or however, if someone is walking outside in the street being all flamboyant, like I don't, I don't talk that way. I have my principles and I am firmly black and white about a lot of them. And I think it's this unwavering tone and this confidence that makes people seethe. I think that, as you know, I think very often you know, I think just the human, cha the, the challenge of being a human, the human condition is we are plagued with doubt and we question our own opinions and we question how people will receive them. And so we often try to like uh, help the medicine go down easy with, a, you know, a spoonful of sugar. We try to like gloss it over and even it out so that it's very palatable for the person listening. And we're very worried about hurting people's feelings or saying it the wrong way. And so we're just overly qualifying a lot of our statements. And I don't feel the need to do that. I feel that, you know, my opinion is my opinion. I'm definitely open to hearing other people's opinions. But when I initially state what I think and feel, I don't need to have those postscripts. And it basically creates a large target because everyone else is not everyone else, many people or some people are plagued by their own insecurities or their own doubts. And they see someone else who doesn't have those same, you know, conflicts. And they're like, I want to take you down, come down to my level, be like me, doubt yourself like me, be afraid of what people think of you just like me. And I think it is possible that my delivery does invite more criticism. And that's fine. I, that's fine. You know, let, let people use me as a punching bag. I have no problem offering myself for the job. It's interesting to me that in a situation where most people would say, okay, this delivery is not working. It's inviting, you know, all this kind of hate. I think that most people would say, let me change my delivery. And your answer is, I'm just going to get really good at taking it. <laughs> um, that's, that's basically what you just said. Yes, it is what I just said. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know what it is? I don't, I, okay, so there's a few things. Um, 
first of all, I would just say that I don't want, I want to feel a certain sense of my own agency and that my own opinion about my work is really the final say on, on what I put out there because I don't want to censor it and conform it to what other people want because I don't think that's valuable contribution to society. Um, so, so I think that, yeah, that is, that is what I'm saying. And yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it, that's, <laughs> listen, there's, everyone's entitled to make their own decisions. That's the decision that you made. And I also do want to point out as we have to wrap things up, I can't believe that the time flew by already. Um, you, you push the envelope and you're, and you're always pushing the envelope and you're always kind of, you know, you're, you're, you're challenging people to think a little bit outside the box. And I think that there is no better example of how much that can help people than the work that you've done with Tori Gum. Because I, it's not a, I will say right away that it is not a product that I've ever tried. I've never tried any kind of CBD product. It's just not something that I feel like is missing in my life. But I know from so many of my friends that that is a product, um, sp uh, specifically the gummies, that has changed the way that they relate to their anxiety, has changed the way that they relate, that they, you know, they feel like they can tackle their lives better. That, you know, when you're in a situation where like, we're right, in a lot of situations, Orthodox women are under huge amounts of stress. And you know what that is? Really, really stressful. And when that's really yeah. stressful to say there's this product that can help you, and yet it has a relationship to marijuana that we all know is plenty of people in the Orthodox community do drugs of all types and marijuana should be the least of our problems. But the, we still, but we don't want to talk about it. And by putting something like that, and I can't, I can't imagine anybody else that would have spearheaded that product the way that you did. And I know for a fact that that's something that has helped so many people. So, you know, there's, there, there's, there's worth, it's worth it to speak up and, and to kind of push the envelope in that way. And, and I'm, and I'm really grateful that you've decided to be the one to, you know, be the carbon and be the sacrifice and take and be the punching bag. Cause someone had to do it and it's really making a big difference in our community. So that's, it's, it's great that, that you put yourself out there for it. Thank you so much for saying that. Thank you. That is such great feedback to hear. I always love to hear, you know, the ways in which other people, you know, are experiencing benefits from CBD and it's such, it's just a, such a motivating thing for me to hear. Thank you. You're very welcome. If somebody wants to learn more about you, Adina, where can they go? They can go to my Instagram page, Flatfish Girl, and feel free to DM me with any questions or feedback. I take my inbox and my DMs very seriously. I try to respond to everyone within a quick time frame, and that's the fastest way to get to me. I can, I can um, testify, by the way, you are an incredibly fast DM responder, and I'm sure that your messages are I'm, I'm sure that you have what to respond to. So I, I do give you a lot of credit for that. The last Thank thing, you. The last thing that I want to ask you, Adina, is what I ask everyone who comes on the show. And that is to you, what does it mean to make an impact? To me, making an impact is thinking about everything you want to write in your biography, everything you want to leave over as your legacy, that you would only feel comfortable releasing once you leave to the next world and challenging yourself to release it while you're alive. Because that way, your fearlessness paves the way for change while you're there as a witness to see it. And you allow yourself to be open to questions from people, from questions from people who are inspired by your, by your life and by your mission statement. And to not wait for 
to not weep for the obituary, to, to, to document as you're alive and change as you're alive and not be so afraid of how it's going to impact my friends and my family in the worst way, but how it's going to impact the community and society at large for the better. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on today, Adina. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thank you so much. It was great. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Adina, the link to her Instagram at Flatbush Girl is in the show notes. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of Impact Fashion, a clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 11 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant dash parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact.